Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, author Eliza Robertson joins me for our monthly A Little More True Crime segment to talk about her book, I Got a Name, The Murder of Crystal Sinek. And we find out how an envelope left for her by a neighbor of her family's in Victoria led her to start digging into the 1992 murder of a 29-year-old white horse woman. Looking to find out more about the circumstances that led to her death and the fate of the man suspected of pulling the trigger who disappeared after the crime. Well, it's a wrap on one of the strangest and most competitive fights on a government auction site I've ever heard of. All over a life-sized Donaire costume. That's right, a Donaire costume. Well, the winning bid was more than $16,000, and we meet the Donaire shop owner, appropriately, who made it his mission, because of civic pride and a fight over lettuce, to walk away the winner of that unlikely prize. But first, the Northwest Territories is coping with its worst wildfire season on record this summer, and that crisis has accelerated over the past few days, with one small community in the south of the territory devastated, hundreds forced to flee, and with a wildfire now burning just 20 kilometers from the capital, Yellowknife, the city's mayor joins me to talk about evacuation alerts issued late today and how they are coping with the fire threat. feels like it's been a summer of disaster, hasn't it? There's been so much in the way of wildfires over the spring. We've seen flooding in places such as Nova Scotia and elsewhere. And uh, let's turn our eyes tonight to where the latest emergency is, and that is in the Northwest Territories, coping with the worst wildfire season on record. Thousands of people have fled over the past few days as wildfires devastate their communities. Evacuation orders have been issued for several communities, including Fort Smith, Enterprise, Hay River, where communication is tough. Getting out is a challenge. And late this afternoon, with a wildfire now burning just 20 kilometers northwest of the capital, Yellowknife, uh, there has been an evacuation order in three areas there in that community of 20,000. Natasha Cleary, and her family left Enterprise, which is on the other side of Great Slave Lake from Yellowknife, closer to the Alberta border, to stay with friends in Grand Prairie. She says her home in Enterprise has burned down, leaving her family of eight with nothing. Still in disbelief. I, I think once we are able to go back and see it, that's when it's going to hit us. And I don't know, just not knowing what the next steps are or where to go. And it's just, it's crazy. We've gotten some pictures and there, it just looks like a bomb went off in town. It's like it looks like something out of the movies now you can imagine how difficult the logistics are around an evacuation in communities in the northwest territory so the canadian armed forces has deployed troops there to help with firefighting efforts and logistical support the cif said personal personnel being deployed to the region arrived today and will be there for several weeks that includes about 120 soldiers as well as a helicopter and a twin otter airplane to help with emergency response and again last night the city of yellowknife declared a local state of emergency to help it cope with any threat wildfire threat to that municipality and uh, today issued an evacuation alert as i mentioned earlier for three areas in that community of 20,000 because a wildfire uh, that was burning about 30 kilometers away late sunday is now just 20 kilometers away with the latest yellowknife's mayor rebecca alti joins me now thanks so much for your time tonight not a problem so some and changes I did want like to this... clarify i know y- yep. i know you said uh 
in, in your comments that we issued an order, um, but really wanted to stress that it was an evacuation alert. for An alert, for rather, yes. Areas. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good to be clear with, with the language in these cases. And sometimes, uh, you know, we with the, so an alert for three areas so to be on standby, in other words, because we know that wildfire exactly. has moved a little bit closer to you than it was, a little too close for comfort, I suppose. Yeah, and that's it is the tricky thing. It's it, you don't want to get into these semantics, but it's it's really um, the evacuation alert is notify residents to to be ready in case that uh, we do have to issue an order, and um, so that's you know making sure residents get all their medications together, any bags of of um, or having a bag with your medications, your eyeglasses. Um, having a plan on a, a meeting location so that if your family is split up and out doing chores and all of a sudden an evacuation order is issued that you all go to the same location, which um, are, we will have if an evacuation order is issued, we will be setting up an evacuation centre here in Yellowknife where residents could come. Um, but these are important conversations to have with your family to discuss You know what would happen and where would we go if an order yeah. comes. It's a scary time always, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure people there are watching what's happened in places like Maui and, and, and places like Nova Scotia and thinking, you know, we've seen, we've seen what happens sometimes when fire moves fast, and I guess everyone's on edge. A hundred percent. You know, when I saw Maui and I was there uh, four or five years ago and I was, I was in that city, and so to see um, these places that I visited that were so beautiful and, um, and are no longer, it's, it's devastating and but it's also really important to remember the different factors that's um, for that fire versus our fire. So, you know, one of the really big things for that fire was that they had hurricane winds. So winds gusting up to 150 kilometers an hour. Um, The winds here are at 30 kilometers an hour. And right now it's, it's becoming evening. So the wind goes down. Um, So definitely a difference when it comes to, to winds. We also, the fires moving over, rocks and through lakes and so we do have a few uh, natural fire they wouldn't be full fire breaks but there's things that can slow the fire down so it's always important every fire is devastating but every fire is different and we always have to make sure we're looking at all those differences when we're considering what to do in ours. Right, of course. Uh, tell me a bit about the situation today, because I know there was uh, last night there was a local state of emergency that was put in place, which just allows you to organize better. And today there were these alerts put out as well. So, and we know just uh, that the fires moved a little bit closer. So, what has happened today, and, and and what are you looking out for in the next twenty four hours or so? Yeah, so like you said, we declared a local state of emergency last night, and the big reason was that we wanted to. Um, uh, require all companies with heavy equipment to to work with us on on um, what we call fire breaks. So that's clearing trees uh, 100 meters wide in the west side of our community. And uh, we voluntarily approached all the the contractors at the beginning of August, and we had four companies working with us. And so, been doing those fire breaks, um, but we really needed to ramp up our work. And so we went from four companies to 12 companies now. Uh, and of course, you know, everybody wanted to help, but a lot of companies had contractual obligations. They had clients that they were working for. And so they couldn't just break that contract and come work for the city until a local state of emergency was called. So that was one of the big things. So, um, now we've got the 12 companies plus the military that arrived today working on those fire breaks. And so we've got priority areas on our fire breaks, 
we're adding some more priority areas. Um, and then we'll be, once we complete that, we'll be going back through them and widening them. And so there's been a lot of work on the ground to create these buffers between the fire and our community. And then at the territorial level, they're the ones that have been doing the, the defensive and offensive forest fire fighting. And so they have also been working on the, the fire that's approaching Yellowknife. But um, it has now come within 20 kilometers. So that's where we wanted to, to issue the alert to residents just to make sure that people are ready if uh, there's a need. Um, but doing a lot of work to create these fire breaks and getting sprinklers set up in our community to minimize the risks. Right. I, I, and, and, and so just, that's... that's right today and we're going to continue that tomorrow and and the day after so lots of work there is it is has i mean i've been to Yellowknife. Uh, has 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 it changed is, is there smoke in the air i mean clearly it's not that far away can you feel the fire's presence already uh it, it depends right now um at two o'clock there's i couldn't see much out of my window um now it's 8 p.m and the smoke's kind of clearing. I'm seeing a little bit of blue skies and the sun's coming out. And right. um, this morning, the, the lake in, my, in front of my office was like glass. It was just so calm. Um, now it's just kind of a light, um, light waves. Uh, not even waves. It's just like twinkling. Um, right. So it, it can be challenging, too, uh, when the smoke rolls in. I know there's a lot of anxiety in the community. So Sunday, there was... We finally had, after a couple of weeks of terrible air quality and lots of smoke, we had blue skies and it was clear air and you could just feel everybody, the, the weight was lifted. And then at two o'clock, that's when we started getting all these notices about um, the southern part of the territory and communities needing to evacuate. And then all of a sudden the, the smoke rolls in and it just, it can feel ominous. And, and it, you look outside and you're reading this news and it can really add a lot of weight and so really encouraging residents to to make sure they're taking care of themselves in that um mental health and you know reaching out if if you need any help the nwt helpline etc because it is a really challenging time right now yeah i mean I, it's a fine line for you too any public official it's a fine line to try to make sure that there there isn't panic but the people are prepared at the same time right i mean i know there's been some criticism around that it's it's uh it is a fine line to walk we've watched many many local local officials around the country having to walk the line this year yeah and it's it's not like of course you know we never want to encourage anybody to panic and it, you never should um, I know that residents want to see, like, what is the plan? Um, mm-hmm. But it's challenging because there's so many different variables that would go into it. Like, is, we, is the fire approaching from the northwest, the northeast? Um, so we're, it's not that we're saying there's don't worry about it. Um, and we're just all kicking our feet up and doing nothing. It's staff are working diligently on monitoring the situation, um, making any changes to these uh, precautionary mitigation plans that we're doing, um, and then notifying residents if there's a change to the plan. So I know there's unfortunately so much rumor mill and, and, and that really can escalate stuff. And so really encouraging people to, to just look at trusted sources and not relay information that I heard from my cousin or my sister right. or the person down the street. So Stay, read reliable stuff and, and talk about reliable stuff.
Rebecca, when, when, evacuations, I think we, when we look at it, I've been reading about it today, uh, no, no simple task to evacuate, even uh, the capital, right, if, if need be. This is something you need to plan for, if ever. Yeah, no, it's it's not easy in the Northwest Territories because there's a lot of communities where it's uh, just one way from the community into the south. So that is, you know, another reason that residents have a lot of anxiety is the city. We only have one highway in. Um, and so to be able to leave if the, the fire is coming from the highway direction, which in this case it is, it, it adds that complexity. So um, that is where it's it's. The big focus is on um, defensively and offensively fighting the fire at the territorial level as well as uh, on the ground at the city level. Right. I, I heard in reporting tonight on Global News that there was a Hercules aircraft that's still there just in case. I mean, there's been certainly you're, you're preparing for, for, for potential, but w- what would the line be? It, how do you make that decision? I guess that's a, that's a tough one. You must consult with a lot of people on this one. For sure. And so um, the territorial government has... Uh, the fire experts and we work with them um, to analyze the situation because like you say, we could say it's okay if it's 20 kilometers away. um, But if the wind is going at one kilometer an hour, it's going to be different than versus Maui where the kilometer, the winds were going 150 kilometers an hour. So that's where you really have to take a look at the the fire's behavior, um, the weather conditions, the forecasts to see, um, what the threat's going to be, and then you work to put uh, mitigation measures in, so actions that we can take to minimize that risk. And so that's what we're spending a lot of time uh, at the the city and territorial and and now at the federal level with the the military coming in is really getting um, aggressive uh, mitigation measures. Right. And how about just for you personally? I mean, you're, you're, you're a resident of, of Yellowknife yourself, right? So you're living through this like everyone else, despite your, your obvious, your, your role of responsibility. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely challenging. It's long days. It's you know I would love to take my my own medicine and take a break from looking at social media and the news and and talking about the fires. But this is my job right now, so uh, it is remembering that you take it day by day, you take it minute by minute, hour by hour. We're all going to get through this, and we just have to you know work together and solving these problems as they come up, being clear with our our heads and and not making those rash decisions it's it's a lot but uh i know we're all gonna come through this and uh, and and you know and then in the fall lots of folks have already been saying like what would you do different i'm like we're in the midst of it right now we will have a great debrief um as municipalities as the territorial government and the federal government you know i think there's a pretty big national conversation that needs to be had yeah, what would, what might that look like? Because I feel like I I don't know if you've spoken to other mayors or other places. I don't know if if there's a you know a, a, a you know a, a pipeline of mayors when you talk to each other about these things. But it feels like this year a lot of people are going to be asking some questions about how to prepare for this stuff. For sure. Well, and one of the biggest challenges is when you look at all the these fires that uh, or all these communities that are impacted by fires. We're just little communities, you know, mm-hmm. a community of enterprise, a hundred. Yellowknife's big compared to with the rest of the communities in the Northwest Territories at 21,000. Um, so if we leave all the responsibility for these community fire breaks to municipalities to, to proactively do, um, it's just not possible. We don't have the financial means to do it, and that's where we need the, the territorial and the federal and provincial governments to, to come together because, you know, it's, it's no different in the Northwest Territories as it is in 
uh, a lot of the places in BC and Alberta, Saskatchewan, across the nation, it's these small little communities. And so we definitely need some support when it comes to the preventative fire breaks that we can do. Um, and then when it comes to the forest fires season, we also need to make sure that we've got enough resources as a nation that, you know, when we had a, when we had COVID and, and making sure that we had enough um, vaccines and we had enough masks, it's like there's this really good um, uh, fire gel that, that saved houses and buildings in, in Bechico, which was uh, a community an hour away from Yellowknife that was impacted at the end of July. And so mm-hmm. as a nation, do we have enough of this, enough of this gel to, to make sure that we're able to fight fires? So um, same with training firefighters. It's, it's, um, you know, in the, in the States, they train more people than they hire where we're here. We tend to just train the people that we've hired. And so then, you know, when you need to call on those extra resources, it's like, well, we don't actually have time to train you. So, um, I think there's an opportunity for more training of people, um, and not just training the, the people that have jobs. Well, Mayor Alti, um, best of luck. I know these are tense days for you. We'll be watching and, and hoping for you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The indictment includes 41 felony counts and is 97 pages long. Right. Uh, Fanny Willis there, Fulton County's District Attorney. If you've been watching the news in the last 24 hours, you won't have missed this one. A new indictment against uh, Donald Trump, of course, the former president. He had 18 allies indicted in Georgia over efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss in that crucial swing state. Uh, and the criminal case announced late Monday night is the fourth brought against the U.S. president and the second this month to allege that he tried to subvert the results of the 2020 vote. Uh, this one, though, uh, it carries some difference to it. Willis based the charges on Georgia's racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations law, or RICO, alleging the accused participated in a, in a wide-ranging conspiracy to overturn the election results. Um, and it lists def- defendants, in addition to Trump, all joined together by Georgia. Again, it's anti-racketeering or RICO law. ABC News legal analyst Asha Rangappa explains why Georgia prosecutor Willis chose to charge Trump with a statute normally associated with mobsters. He's listed 161 different racketeering acts in this indictment. And the way that RICO works is any individual defendant only has to have participated in two of those acts in order to be liable for the entire conspiracy. This is a way to get to the people at the top. This is how they go after mob bosses and gang leaders. And I think that this is how she's trying it. Now, again, there will be lots of ink spilled and more talk on US TV and radio and elsewhere about this than we could ever do on this show. So we're going to not do the whole thing about these latest charges. What I was really interested in is the reaction to them. Because here's what's happened. Of course, Donald Trump is still by far the front runner to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. So what's really been telling is how divided the reaction to those charges has been. Um, there were some stats cited in the Globe today that lay it pretty bare. Seven in, seven in 10 Republicans polled in the US do not believe that Biden was Joe Biden was legitimately elected in 2020. Nearly 60% of those polled believe the indictments of Trump are meant to stop his 2024 campaign. That's a few percentage points higher than those who said it was about upholding the rule of law. And here's an even more alarming poll. Only 44% of Americans believe that votes will be counted accurately in next year's election. Now, here in Canada, of course, we've watched this 
over many years now with a sort of combination of shock and fascination. Uh, but also, how can we be sure that you know what appears to be a real erosion of democracy won't happen here too? I mean, what we have essentially, if you think about elections, and I've spent time in countries that don't have democracies, if you think about elections, nothing is more important than people believing that their vote counts. That's essentially the, the fundamental basis of it all. I mean, if you think about electoral politics in the US or elsewhere, I mean, there's a lot of money involved. There's gerrymandering of voting districts. There's voter suppression. No democracy is perfect, right? But people need to believe that their vote matters to some extent. And if you start to have a wide portion of the population believing that elections don't matter, that if your side loses, it's fixed. Uh, you're in deep trouble in a democracy. We've seen that happen in the U.S. How fragile American democracy is, that remains to be seen. But it certainly is eroding. Could it happen here? Well, that's the very topic my next guest tackles in a new book appropriately called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Rob Goodman is well-placed to know. He's a former congressional speechwriter in the U.S., who moved to this country late last decade. He's now an assistant professor of politics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Again, his book is called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. And Rob joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. What, what, a, what a prescient time to write. Your experience just in of itself, having been there uh, at, at the height of sort of the arrival of Donald Trump, uh, and now to be on this side of the border looking across, as so many of us do obsessively, um, just a bit, of, a bit of the inspiration for, for what you saw here and what made you decide you wanted to tackle it. Well, I think in a lot of ways, um, when I moved to Canada with my family, I, I now have uh, my wife and I now have uh, three girls and we're raising three daughters here in, in Toronto. Um, and when we moved, I think the initial feeling of, of getting to Montreal and then uh, Toronto, where we now uh, live full time, was the sense of this is a place where potentially the worst pathologies of, of American politics, of American uh, gun violence, uh, of the American healthcare system, all, all these things. I mean, you have some rose colored glasses when you move to a new place. Uh, the, the sense that this is a place where those problems might not quite be the same or the same strength. But, you know, I, I realized over time that it, as the rose-colored glasses fade, fade you, you, you get to know a place, you live in a place. You know, it's not as if Canada is immune to the forces that have degraded American democracy and American politics um, really over the course of my lifetime. Those forces are just as much on the move in Canada as they are in the U.S. But I also... You know, my, in my judgment as someone who pays attention to politics on both sides of the border and someone who studies politics, I don't think there is an advance. So I think part of the reason I wrote this book was because I wanted to do my small part uh, to help it stay that way, to, to help Canadians appreciate, especially from the perspective of someone who's relatively new here, uh, that the, the, the stable, relatively non-polarized, uh, relatively functional democracy that we have up here in Canada is uh, worth protecting. Uh, but it's also endangered, and it's also subject to the same risks that we've seen so vividly in the United States. So, so being able to capture that perspective, that sense of both appreciation for what we have and realism about the risks that it faces, so that, that's what I set out to do when I wrote that book, to express both those thoughts. Maybe to start with the obvious question, which is, what is wrong in America? Because when one looks back over the course of American history, even recent American history to the 70s and Vietnam, the civil rights movement, um, you know, there have been upheavals in the past in America. And sometimes one looks at one's own at one's own modern existence, you know, the life you're living, and you think, okay, well, this is completely different from the past, and it's much worse. Uh, I, I, and a lot of people, I think, on this side of the border look to the South and think, wow, things are really, you know, democracy is under threat there, to some extent. 
um, although the institutions that are in place seem to have bent but not broken uh, in time. What, what, what do you think underlies the difference now uh, with, with the threat to democracy in America versus, say, 50 years ago? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's it's a fair uh, time frame to zero in on. You know, one thing that this is by no means my insight, but I think I find it really uh, persuasive, is the idea that, that America, in a lot of senses, has not been a full democracy, uh, except since 1965 onward, uh, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act and, and the extension of uh, the franchise uh, in law, and in fact, uh, to black voters and to other voters of color in the US. Uh, this is a pretty recent accomplishment in American history, but it's also been really subject uh, to uh, to backlash, uh, to nationalist identitarian politics, to attempts to roll, roll back uh, the gains that voters have asserted for democracy uh, in the Reconstruction period, in the Civil Rights period, uh, in the 2020 protest movements. Um, all of these moments, I think, are part of the tug of war between the forces that are supporting multiracial democracy in the United States and, and the forces that really have a picture of a much more exclusive, much more restricted kind of democracy in place. And when I think about it in that historical perspective, it really helps me also understand what we saw and just live through uh, with the experience of the Trump presidency and, of course, with the experience of the attempted coup on uh, January 6, 2021. Um, I, I see this, and I think a lot of uh, political scientists see this, as one more instance of the very long tug of war between multiracial democracy and a more exclusive uh, white nationalist democracy that, that Americans have been struggling over uh, for generations and generations. And I don't expect that that struggle is going to get resolved in our lifetimes, but I think it's realistic to understand uh, that it's going to be a feature of American politics um, for the foreseeable future. Uh, Canada has a different history. It's not as if it hasn't struggled with the very same problems uh, of, of racial exclusion um, and other kinds of exclusion that inform its democracy. But I think because Canada has lived through a different history and has faced different problems. The problems that confront Canadian democracy are not exactly the same ones that confront American democracy. And, and another reason I wanted to write this book was because I wanted to help Canadians focus a little bit more on what is distinctive about the democratic strengths and the democratic challenges in this particular place. You know, I, I think about how consumed most Canadians are, and you know, I count myself on that too, because I'm certainly on the New York Times and CNN all the time. But I think about how consumed most Canadians are uh, with American news, with the happening south of the border, with with the latest uh, turns in the, the Trump soap opera, I, and of course those things are um, they are they're they're compelling, they're great TV, they're fascinating, they're they're scary, uh, and yet at the same time, the more Canadians focus on those problems, I think the less Canadians are able to appreciate that the threats to democracy in Canada are are quite different uh, than American threats. Yeah, you, you mentioned it. Uh, you mentioned it elsewhere that uh, Canadians spend an awful lot of time kind of uh, gawking at at America's sort of the dumpster fire that it is, and maybe through a certain lens as well that that uh, that is not necessarily helpful. And that maybe we should spend more time reflecting on our own country because we have this. It could not here is sort of you know, and and this has been pointed out as well. But the title of your book, "Not Here," could be ah, not here. You <laughs> know, it won't happen here. And you think that that is that is well, not necessarily completely untrue, naive to a certain extent to think that it could not happen here. Yeah, you know, I read that title in a lot of ways. I, I read it both as as an assertion of not here, we're not going to let it happen. We're going to take steps in time to recognize that democracy is, is fragile and threatened all around the world, including in Canada. But I also read it you know, in a more fearful tone, this idea of, of not here too, please. Uh, this sense that despite the fact that the 
the challenges faced by American democracy and Canadian democracy are, are so different. There are a lot of continuities between the sort of uh, far-right, anti-democratic, uh, authoritarian, right populist forces, wh whatever word is your favorite word to use for them. And I, I use them all interchangeably sometimes, which is probably not the most accurate way of doing it, but I'm, I'm trying to get the point across uh, in whatever words I can find. The, those forces are in a lot of ways continuous between the U.S. and Canada. I think a great example of this is uh, you know, the percentage of um, funding for the uh, the occupation of, of Ottawa, the, uh, the, the the trucker convoy mm -hmm. that I think in a lot of ways was uh, the Canadian January 6th, although just a little slower and a little colder. Um, I think even more than four out of every $10 to support uh, that massive occupation of the capital um, came from American sources, uh, of course, inspired by far-right American media, inspired by social media that links groups across the border. So in a lot of ways, um, there are continuities between the, 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 the forces that um, really, I, I think, object to modern multiracial democracy in both places. But I also think that unless Canadians pay attention to what's going on in Canadian politics specifically, uh, we're not going to have the sort of nimbleness and agility it takes uh, to adapt and respond before it's too late. You know, I think just living through this in the U.S., I think there's a sense among so many people, especially so many Americans who consider themselves liberals or, or otherwise left of center, uh, the, the Trump phenomenon just blindsided them. You know, I don't think it does anymore, but I think there was a time when it really did. Um, and if Canadians can avoid that a little bit, I, I think that will be all for the good. I think often we look at this and realize there's some real underlying grievances here that perhaps institutions in general haven't been too good at responding to, that in many ways Donald Trump is is the symptom, not the cause, right? I mean, of course, his attitudes towards things are are are, are, are not unheard of, but certainly new uh, in an, in the American context, at least in modern history, uh, but what about what, what about that? How do how do you set how do you address some of these issues that clearly are angering people, such as those who took part in the trucker convoy, um, to some extent those who took part in the January sixth uh, insurrection at, at the Capitol as well? How do you address those and also still protect your institutions? Because I think what you've talked about here is it's the eroding trust in institutions that is the big mm -hmm. problem here. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that most people experience institutions isn't just as a, uh, a fancy building you go into every once in a while, but as something that has a bearing on their lives. Uh, institutions have bearings on our lives in all sorts of ways, in the quality of our healthcare system, in the quality of our public schools, in, in whether we're able to pioneer new uh, and useful social programs like uh, $10 a day childcare that, that's potentially being rolled out uh, across the country. So I think all these things, all these public goods are the ways that Canadians experience the quality of their democratic institutions in real life. I think when we talk about democratic institutions and whether they're responsive or whether they listen, it can get really abstract really quickly. But I always try to bring it back to why does democracy actually matter for any of us? How does it make our life uh, fairer or, or better or more livable in any meaningful way? And I think part of the reason that there's such discontent with the state of democracy um, in places like Canada and places like the U.S. is that you know, the programs that we've come to rely on, um, the programs that I think define the way that, that we relate to our government uh, in, in 2023, uh, simply aren't what they used to be. You know, think about uh, wait times in ERs, think about overcrowding in public schools, um, you know, think about the housing crisis and, and how we've had a government that's really sat on the housing bubble uh, for, for almost a decade and hasn't really uh, made much progress on it. All these things, I think, have a measurable impact uh, on people's quality of life or the perceptions of their uh, quality of democracy. And I think more than that, 
these sorts of programs are in a lot of ways training grounds for us as democratic citizens. You know, a place like a public school drop-off where I drop my daughters off to school uh, every weekday uh, starting in September, it's a place where you interact with other parents, uh, other members of your neighborhood um, as as equals, as as a temporary space where things like your your status, your wealth, the kind of house you live in, these things don't matter quite as much as they do other places. And we need these democratic spaces because we can't really do democracy unless we have an opportunity to to see each other's equals, acknowledge each other's equals, work together as equals. But when these programs get degraded, uh, when these programs uh, cause people to to opt out, to opt into private services, uh, to demand a radical overhaul of privatizations of the kind that uh, I think Doug Ford is very interested in Ontario, for instance, I think this really promotes both the inability to think and act democratically with other people, and it promotes a lot of cynicism about democracy in general. So when I think about the reaction to, uh, say, the trucker convoy or to uh, January 6th um, from center-left governments like Joe Biden in the U.S. or or Justin Trudeau in Canada, um, you know, they've been pretty good at using law enforcement, using the sledgehammer of the state to, um, uh, to, to roll up networks that are opposed to democracy, to roll up far right networks. And I'm not opposed to that, but I also think it's a pretty unconstructive, uncreative way of dealing with the fact that you do have a great deal of democratic cynicism in both countries uh, and many more countries around the world. And I really think that unless the center left expects to get, uh, wants to get swamped by rising authoritarianism, I really think it needs to think more creatively about what it can do to make democracy actually have an impact on people's lives when it comes to the quality of the programs that they interact with every day. One of the things that I, you know, I lived in China for a while. I've reported in other parts of the world where there where there is no democracy is often find, I find in places like the U.S. and here, we kind of take it for granted. You know, we don't think, oh, well, you know, critic, you know, something like weaponizing the Department of Justice, depending, you know, regardless of what your political leanings are, uh, you know, well, well, why not? Well, if you've ever lived anywhere where they weaponize the Department of Justice, you'll know why not, right? I mean, I think sometimes we 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 take what we have for granted to some extent and we don't realize that walking down that path that accepting corruption in a leader just because he's your leader and you think he's fighting your fight um can become a very very slippery slope and it, you know there are a million examples around the world uh, of of it yeah so i think the reason we shouldn't take it for granted is because corruption spreads i think we recognize that when a lot of people see the corruption of someone like a trump in the us or a bolsonaro in brazil that we identify with this corruption if we're the one of their supporters. We think, well, he got one over the system, I can too. But what I think we don't realize if we think that is the reason they're able to pull one over on the system is because of the wealth and the power and the connections they have, but they certainly aren't in the mood to share with ordinary people. Uh, so I think it's really a trap to identify with and celebrate that kind of corruption uh, because ordinary people certainly don't have access to it. What ordinary people have access to is democratic power to hold the powerful to account. You know, things like voting, but also things outside of electoral politics, uh, like trade unions, opportunities for ordinary people to organize with other ordinary people. Uh, and I think the prospects for these things are a lot more friendly to democracy uh, than, than the prospects of rooting for the corruption of someone like a Trump or a Bolsonaro. Rob, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. It's time for our monthly A Little More True Crime segment. And this one is a really fascinating one for a lot of reasons. The story itself is fascinating. The way the writer came across it is fascinating. Usually when writers or reporters delve into a crime story, it's often because they have a connection to the case. Maybe they covered it when it happened. 
maybe they covered it in the courts. Or oftentimes there's sort of a broad interest in cases or cold cases, for instance, in one province or one city. But this next story starts with an envelope left on a doorstep in Victoria in 2015. A neighbor of the writers, of, of the writer's family, actually, she grew up in Victoria, but didn't wasn't living there at the time. A neighbor had held on to two pages of writings by a woman named Crystal Senek for more than two decades. And she included those writings and a note explaining that she'd worked with Senek back in the early 90s in Whitehorse in Yukon, and that Senek, a 29-year-old at the time, had been murdered in 1992. She explained a little bit about the case, that it was uh, the accused, the accused in the case was the estranged husband of Senek's best friend, a woman she had helped and supported as she left an abusive relationship and became the target of the best friend's estranged husband's anger. Um, he's never been found. He's never been caught. Uh, he still stands accused of the murder. It's not clear if he took his own life or fled that day. People simply don't know. Again, the recipient of this letter, of this envelope, was a young writer named Eliza Robertson. She was born just four years after the murder back in 1992, or before, rather. She was just four years old at the time. But something about Senek's writing, her murder, and her killer still at large captivated Robertson. And so she set off on a long journey to learn more about Crystal, how she lived, who she was, who her friends were. And the events leading up to her death in 1992, to her murder in 1992, and what could have possibly happened to the man suspected of pulling the trigger. It's also a story about intimate partner violence and why more wasn't done to help protect a woman whose only crime was to be caring and supportive to her friend, uh, to someone under threat, and then in the need of help in an abusive relationship. And after years of work, Robertson, with the help of researcher Miles Dauphin, lays out what she found in a book called I Got a Name, The Murder of Crystal Senek. And Eliza Robertson joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to speak on your show. This was, um, I mean, stories come from so many, people's interest in stories come from so many places. And I'm not sure anybody outside of Yukon would have heard of this case. How you came upon it, though, is is unique, to say the least. It is. Um, I encountered this story first in 2015, so uh, almost exactly eight years ago. I, at the time, I wasn't even living in Canada. I was living in the UK for grad school. And I was visiting my my childhood home, so my mother's home in Victoria, where I grew up. One day, an envelope was left on my doorstep, and it it had my name on it. And uh, it turns out that it was from my neighbor. And inside the envelope were two pages of writing, a kind of stream of consciousness, just text, piece of writing that was about one and a half pages uh, from this woman, Crystal Senek. And there was a contextual note from my neighbor saying that she had worked with Crystal in the Yukon in Whitehorse and Crystal had been murdered uh, in 1992. And these pages were found on her computer after the office was, was cleaning them out. And she wasn't sure why, but someone had given her these pages and, you know, this was 92. So however many years ago before 2015, I'll let other people yeah, do that. Yeah, 23 years, a long time. Yeah, yeah. over yeah. two decades. Indeed, um, she had unearthed them again and she she just didn't want to hold on to them anymore. She didn't want to recycle them either. Um, and she says, she wrote in her note that 
for some reason, she still doesn't know why my name kept coming to her head. So she gave them to me. And as she writes in the letter, in case they would be of interest to me in my writing, she knew I was a writer. So, uh, and she knocked on the right door. I mean, as a writer, it's just, that doesn't happen every day. I can tell you that's never happened to me since. And it never happened to me before that moment. So it felt, it really did feel like a call of some sort to, to look into who Crystal was and to unearth the story. As it is a story, and you mentioned it very early in the book, uh, not only was 1992 sort of well, clearly pre, pre-internet when it came to news coverage, um, but like so many things, this was not a murder case that got much attention, if any attention, really outside of Yukon. No, and I think that's an important distinction because it got a lot of attention within the local communities, so specifically around Whitehorse and Carcross, which is a small community uh, just outside of Whitehorse, Carcross is actually where Crystal lived, and um, there it was it was huge news. And in fact, that I still uh, hear from community members who speak about that event and and actually the trauma that it seemed to cause them in, personally and also just the community at large. It was quite shocking that that wasn't a thing that that would that happened very often, if at all. So. Um, it was huge news within the communities, and it became, to my knowledge, one of the largest cases and investigations in territory history. But as you just alluded to, it didn't really, the word of it didn't really spread outside of the territory. Uh, certainly, I hadn't heard of it until I found those pages. Tell me about Crystal, because you know one can imagine a murder case taking place in Yukon, and perhaps this is someone who grew up there. Crystal wasn't from from Yukon. Crystal was from Ontario, from small town Ontario, and she found her way out there. She's a fascinating, fascinating person. Yeah, yeah, Crystal. So when she was murdered, she was twenty nine. She was just weeks shy of thirty. Just from everyone, from everyone's recollection, she was a kind hearted deeply present engaged individual she she was an amazing friend she was um a, a daughter she was very close with her father especially she was a sister she was a niece she was really close with her family and um you know apart from that apart from these interpersonal relationships she was an engineer she was a musician. She played guitar, mandolin. She sang, which is, I think, you, one might trace that also to her mother. Her mother mm-hmm. uh, played in a band called Alberta Sunshine. She had so many faucets to her. And, yeah. and an arm wrestler. The, and an arm wrestler. Uh, yeah, well. yeah I mean, indeed, indeed. Like she was the, the <laughs> ultimate sort of renaissance person. She could do everything. Yeah, an arm wrestler. Thank you for mentioning that. An arm wrestler. She was renovating her cabin single-handedly. You know, she was very physically strong and agile. You could say she defied a lot of gender roles, especially for that time period. Yeah, no, she really, Renaissance woman is a a good phrase to describe her. And what I wanted to say is the through line in what so many people remembered about her is she was, how do I put this? She she didn't care what other people thought. She was deeply authentic. And I think that's part of what made her a good friend. You know, there's one story that I mentioned in the book where uh, 
a girl that a, a young girl, a young student that she had gone to school with in Ontario actually really considered Crystal her protector because this young student at the time, she was one of the smaller children. She wasn't popular and Crystal would go and sit beside her on the bus. It's just a small story, but stories like that kept coming up as I, as we interviewed people who knew Crystal. And it's also very important to what happens next, because when one thinks of domestic violence, one often thinks of, of partner, intimate partner violence. But in this case, um, and we can talk about it in the next uh, segment as well, but this, this originates with a friendship. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's important to note this, this book really combs through the issue of intimate partner violence, but Crystal herself was not was not the intimate partner. She was the best friend of the person who um, was in that relationship, that abusive relationship. And Crystal was trying to help her friend, her friend leave. She was, uh, you know, a support person for her and, and and the friend's kids. She offered her a place to stay when needed. And just by virtue, I think of who Crystal was, again, how she defied all of these norms at the time. The abusive husband, Ronald Bax, who is Crystal's killer, he really perceived her as a threat. He perceived her as a rival. He was actually competitive with her. And he, in fact, like s- spread rumors at the time that he was having, rather that Crystal was having a relationship with his wife. Uh, these aren't substantiated by any means, but I do think that's important to mention too, is that the threat of homophobia um, and uh, homophobic hate crimes, that's that's also a part of the story, even if Crystal was not gay. The events that lead up to to, to her death, and because I'm reading through the book, they're so familiar because if you've covered intimate partner violence, the warning, the red flags start to go off. And in this case, um, a friend of hers, husband, uh, the friend leaves, the husband goes into, uh, goes into a shelter, I gather. And then a bunch of events start to happen where the threat level starts to increase, uh, with this gentleman called, with this uh, person called Ronald Bax. Um, what happens? What happens? How does it unfold? So one of the flashpoints is indeed, yes, that the friend had wanted to leave, but also she was requesting custody of their two kids. And Crystal and the friend both knew that this would be a a very vulnerable time for both of them. Crystal herself had been receiving threats and aggression from Ronald Bax in the weeks leading up to this moment, to the point that Crystal decided that she would leave town. She actually went... First, she was staying above a friend's store. Um, so she was staying in like a little apartment above a friend's store so that she wasn't alone in her cabin. And then she ended up going to Disneyland. And um, this was a, a long planned trip that just happened to also serve as a reason to just leave, leave town, let things diffuse while her friend delivered the custody papers. And uh, while the friend was doing this, she had decided herself to stay in a shelter. So yeah, I won't I won't get into all of the details here, but essentially there there was an an verbal altercation when the custody papers were mentioned or the 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 request for custody was mentioned and they decided to go back to the shelter, both the friend and Crystal. The police came, they were both interviewed by the police, and this is what's so devastating. One of one of the pieces that's so devastating is that Crystal asks for help multiple times to the police. She says she doesn't feel safe. She believes that Bax is out to get her, that he hates her, that he's going to run her off the road. And she asks for an escort home. And that escort is denied without without much of a safety plan or a follow-up plan for how to ensure that she stays secure. 
So she ends up leaving of her own choice. She was offered a place to stay at the shelter, but she, she's been away at this point for two weeks, at least two weeks. Uh, it's March in the Yukon. So you can imagine how cold it is. She has to make sure her, her pipes aren't freezing. She has animals that she has to feed. Um, so she just feels this deep tugging to go home and Bax is there waiting for her and he shoots her and he, yeah, he disappears. He's never been found, neither, neither dead nor alive. And, and the murder weapon has never been found either. Simply disappears. And, and that you bring that into the story a lot, which is this idea that, and I, I don't know whether it was, I mean, you talk about how it, it, this story could be told again today in many ways. I think uh, policing has improved over, over years, but at the time it was really seen as up to those who are being targeted to protect themselves, not the other way around. I mean, in Crystal's case, as you pointed out, uh, she'd borrowed a, a vehicle, I believe she wanted to return. She had every reason to want to go home. Um, mm-hmm. And the only alternative she was given was don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, this is all, again, in retrospect, there are reasons that RCMP say that they didn't escort her home. One of those reasons is uh, they would be t- taking her from a place of perceived safety, which would have been the shelter and putting her somewhere insecure, which is the home. But I will say those reasons were not articulated by the police in that moment. They, it was more, <laughs> if you read through the transcripts of of interviews that were taken right after, uh, right after the murder, all he was saying is, you know, the police in Carcross are doing their own thing that night. They can't help you. This isn't our job. He hasn't done anything wrong yet. There's nothing we can do. It wasn't, you're more secure here. That was not the messaging, at least in terms of the dialogue that was recorded um, immediately after the event. So, and one reason why I think Bax's disappearance has been so mysterious is that he was a, an exceptionally skilled outdoors guide. It was part right. of what he did for his work. So he had the skills to be able to disappear. And 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 obviously, I mean, we don't know what happened. Again, this has never been tried in a court or so on. He simply was never seen again, at least officially, never seen again uh, after that night. When you start to look into to what what was the reaction of the community? Because I gather that at the time, the communities there was a real sense of fear about perhaps he, there was you know he he might strike again, or you know there was in fact people put into protective custody. There was this was a big deal in Whitehorse and surroundings. Yeah, they were terrified. So at, in the community at that time, there was something called a party line, which is, um, right. I'm probably going to miscommunicate it because I, this is not from my you, own you, era. You, but... Not from your own era. Yeah, but you used to be able to, in other words, everyone got on the same phone line so neighbors could talk yeah. to each other, right? Yeah, I, I didn't have exactly. one, but I know people who did, yeah. <laughs> you just pick up the phone and it would be there. And so um, the police, the RCMP sent out a message through the party line saying, do not leave your houses. There is, you know, a, a violent person at large violent and armed person at large do not leave your houses uh do not spend time in your cabin if you if you plan to spend time in your cabin in car cross during the spring break because spring break was approaching you had to actually notify rcmp and let them know that you would be there so this was this is very serious you had reports of people who spent they just stayed awake all night with a literally with like the shotgun on their on their thigh just waiting just in case one of the great mysteries here, and I know this is not because there wasn't a lot of resources poured into it, because there were, uh, but the RCMP and others set off to try to find Ronald Bax, but but don't. What happened? What, as far as you could tell, having looked into this, and you went out on your own search, what happened to him? There's many theories about what happened to uh, Crystal's killer. There are. 
I think it's fair to state that we still don't know. You know, the police maintain that there's a 70% chance that he committed suicide, though no body was found. And that said, the Yukon's a vast territory, as multiple people have mentioned. So it's easy to disappear one way or another, whether you are dead or alive. What's made me pause again and again is that the people who knew him best they don't seem to believe that he would kill himself. They suggest that his ego was too big, that he would disappear, that he had every ability to disappear. So I mentioned before that he was an outdoorsman. So he would take um, he would take rich businessmen out into the bush, take them hunting, and they actually would tip him with guns, which is a kind of a an anecdote that we uncovered in our research. So he had he had many guns and he had a lot of outdoors equipment. Many people speculated that he would have hiked across the border into Alaska. Carcross, where the murder happened, was only about four, 40 minutes driving to, to Alaska. And from there, you could easily get the boat from Skagway down to Washington or even to Oregon. What took me to Mississippi was that in 2015, Ronald Bax's name actually surfaced in, in uh, Rena Lara, Mississippi. Wow. And I... I I uncovered this, you know, a year after I'd received the papers. I wasn't yet working on the book, but I was still Googling the case from time to time to see if anyone else was talking about it. And in 2016, so a year after this happened, I found an article written by a journalist down there in Mialara. And she had interviewed the woman who had apparently um, found an identity card, an information card that said Ronald Jeffrey Bax, which is indeed his full name. And she had found it in the backpack of her lodger at the time. So this individual was staying with her and her husband in Rena Lara. He was a friend. He became a friend of her husband. He was just passing through time through town at the time. Right. On a bicycle, and, no less, right? I mean, that's not the, yeah. the story of this individual is that he sort of was bicycling from somewhere in the Northwest to Florida and wound up in Mississippi. Indeed. And, and, and in fact, had come originally from Alaska. So there, there were a number of details that were uncanny. And I won't, uh, yeah, I won't go into all of them now because I do, <laughs> I do want people to go and read the book, but, um, it was, it was uncanny to this day. I, I honestly still find it bewildering just the, the number of details that overlapped. And, um, when when and I mean, just the, yeah I, I mean so listeners know there had been sort of there had been quite an extensive investigation into this as well as as an inquiry that was done in BC or at least by BC's uh, by by BC's chief corner I believe at the time but but he had been on America's Most Wanted or one of those even in very mm-hmm. or unsolved mysteries very short segments but the name had been out there so if you went looking for it uh, you might be able to find it as apparently was the case here. Although, as you point out, neither of those shows had been on a very for a very long time by the time this person in uh, Mississippi announces that she found this ID card. No, they hadn't been in syndication during the years, like literally the decade leading up to when this was found. So I, you know, because that would be the, the, the obvious rationale is that she was watching America's Most Wanted and his, his face, you know, flipped across the screen and it looked like her lodger. So um so she made up this strange detail around finding the ID card and and she called crime stoppers and that's I, I struggle to believe that that's what happened I still don't know exactly what happened and again I'll I'll leave it to the listener to maybe read the book and and they can find out more of the details that I shared there but it it does remain very baffling this was um this was a 
potential lead or a tip that the RCMP did look into. So the the lead investigator at the time did speak to both the woman who supposedly found the ID and, and to the journalist, in fact. Um, but the individual whose ID was, was apparently found, uh, his fingerprints didn't check out. And that's right. why he was eventually released. You speak a lot with members specifically. I mean, I know I know that through the time you reported this, that you wrote this book, that relations with the family and the friend uh, in particular, uh, who she was who she was protecting more or less, were always fraught. I mean, this is a, even though with the passage of time, this has been a very difficult one for everyone involved. Um, but you did speak a lot with the family during during the writing of this book. What was their hope here? Do they? They? I, I imagine that obviously they they would like him to be found, but justice is a weird word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, justice. Justice is is a a weird word in a tall order. It's it's hard, if not impossible, to find that at this stage. That was one thing that the family continuously mentioned. But I will say, all of the family that we spoke to, they believe he's still out there, and they still want him to come to so-called justice. They still want him to be arrested, to stop, you know, living free. Um, again, we don't know if he, if indeed he is out there. It's possible he's no longer alive. Uh, so I don't want to discount that very real possibility, but I, I also think it's a very real possibility that he that he's just living under the radar somewhere. And it, it, again, it was it was easy to get away and live under the radar in the early 90s. You didn't need a passport to cross the border. A yep. lot of things have changed since then. But to come back to the family, uh, there's just so much so much grief, so much hurt that that remains like knotted in in their hearts. You can tell when you're talking to them. It's it's, it's been a very emotional process both our you know our conversations clearly for them on their own i felt that way interviewing them too but my my hope also is that this book can offer a shred of resolution which you know can't ever fully be offered but this is my attempt to at least you know puts put crystal's memories in one place to to offer something to the family that's you know a physical tangible uh memento let's say yeah, one of the sad parts in the book is that her dad passes, right? Her dad does pass. Yeah, and he was he was in his eighties when he passed, uh, so he was at that time of life. But certainly, he had, he had followed this case meticulously. He kept meticulous notes in the decades after her murder, and you could tell that he just he never gave up hope that that Bax would be found. But he he sounded pretty depressed and pretty. De- discouraged at times. Yeah, you you mentioned as well just his relationship with the police and I think there you provided a lot of insight into 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 how a family processes that kind of loss. Mm-hmm. Because if you if anyone out there ever thinks and you read it, you know, you read it in novels or so on that somehow there's such a thing as closure uh, or mm-hmm. that somehow people get over things, it, you you know, you 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 publish these birthday letters that her dad would write to Crystal. Um mm-hmm. And they're and they're you know you can tell that it never the grief never ends for him. No, no, it really, really doesn't, and and it it's still even with him it it hasn't ended even though he's no longer alive. It, his his nephew, who's Crystal's cousin, who we speak to in the book, he still holds it too. You know, Crystal was his beloved cousin, and he was really close with her father, which who was his his father's brother. Um, yeah, it's it's really really sad to see how. 
an incident like this touches and and devastates so many lives. The aftermath of this, uh, Eliza, is, is pretty. I mean, there are so many threads to this story. I think the title of your book suggests that the "I Got a Name" is meant to remind you that you know, behind some of the you know, the media reporting can be very um, stereotypical, right? It can sort of categorize people in certain ways. Uh, that, in some ways, Crystal Sinek was a very, a, a very interesting individual, a very interesting uh, individual in every sense of the word, and that her loss um, was was much more than just a, a murder. It was sort of the the ending of a very interesting life, uh, and, and that comes through in the book as well. And I, I feel like that's sort of what the story you were telling her story, not the crime story. Yeah, that was really a focus for me. I and I write this in the beginning of the book. I had I had two goals. I mean, both they both uh, in some ways were impossible goals. But I, I did want to get to the bottom of of where is Ronald Bax, and I also wanted to to find out who Crystal was. I wanted to put the pieces of her back together the best that I could, from talking to her family, from reading. Um, you know, letters written to her, or in some cases from her, from her own writing that that you know started it all for me. That I found in in that envelope from my neighbor. Um, she was, as you just said, she was certainly a, an extraordinary individual, just very very complex. That's partly what those what those pages revealed too. As much as she was, she had a lot of physical brawn, and she was, um, you know, this very bright. Uh, bright young woman, an engineer, but she had such a deep, contemplative, um, almost mi- mysterious side, a side that was kind of looking to what's beyond what we can see. And that, that comes through in the pages of writing. Yeah. And, and you know, being killed at, at 29, who knows what she could have become. She was really only at the beginning of that journey. How did you find that writing this story worked into the broader story of intimate partner violence because it is not your what one associates with with the kinds of intimate partner violence cases that we too often see unfortunately but this was a different kind of story but still carried so many of the same markers and you point them out in the book uh that many other incidents such as this one have yeah i think one of the one of the threads that links this story to other stories of intimate partner violence is this question of of who we believe and when we believe them and one of the one of the great sadnesses for me in in telling this story and then subsequently hearing other people's stories you know be they friends of mine be they others that I've just crossed paths with is this story is is truly not unique in, in many ways, and it's also not isolated to the 90s. So I've talked to people in, in recent years who have gone to people for help, to authorities for help, be they police, be they um, paramedics or, or doctors, ho- hospitals, and they have not been taken seriously. They're, they've been dismissed. They've been typecast, for lack of a better word, or stereotyped, and and kind of left on their own. And it's I want to underline, too, Another thing that I that I hear frequently is it takes so much courage and conviction to to talk about what you're afraid of, especially when it comes to intimate partner violence with another person. It takes so much uh, courage to actually leave, leave that dynamic and ask for help. And when you do and the person still doesn't take you seriously, that just I I think that's such a and it, it's an insult to injury and 
there are endless ways in which this story continues to reverberate out into today's society, but those are some some pieces that come to mind. What with all this work that you did, starting with that letter, uh, and and you know, with these sorts of stories, you could have continued on and on and on. I, I suppose you had to come to an end point at some point uh, and write the book and actually sit down and do it. But what did you walk away with? You you get this letter back in 2015 on your 2016 on your doorstep, and 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 now the book's out there. What did you walk away from with in this whole process? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know if I have a succinct answer, but one of, it sounds funny, but one of the things that I do walk away with is actually a relationship with Crystal in a way. I do feel like I got to know her as much as I can. I feel like I mentioned this in the book, but in my research process, I almost caught my, I caught myself thinking a few times, oh, I can't wait to finally interview Crystal. Like I was talking to all of her friends and family and subconsciously it made sense that, oh, I would, I would talk to her next. And of course I can't do that. <laughs> but uh, I did get the sense, you know, it, in some ways this was a deep, deep, deep study on another person's life. In what other circumstance do you spend years of your life talking to every friend and family member and pouring over yearbooks and pouring over photos and pouring over words written and letters and and home videos just to understand one other human being. And I think I, you know, I don't pretend to think that I have a complete understanding by any stretch of the imagination. I never met her and she was killed when I was between four and five years old, Right. but she left, she's left an imprint for me. And that's, that's really meaningful to this day. I still feel like I have some relationship with her, even if that version of her is, is my own version of her. It's kind of an imagined version of her, but that feels actually quite sacred to me. And you point out an interesting aspect of doing that kind of work is that in that person's life, it's hard to tell what was important. Like you point out that, I mean, the I Got a Name comes from a mixtape, right? Mm -hmm. And and you you attach a lot of importance to this mixtape without ever understanding whether or not Crystal did. And that that is part of both, I suppose, the it's it's part of what what how this is done. It's it's unavoidable, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. You don't you you do a deep study on someone, but you can't know what was important to them. You just have to try to draw as much of a picture as you can. Exactly. Yeah, you're just left with with fragments. And I doubt that mixtape was very important to Crystal. She would give actually her friends many different mixtapes. So this was one of of many, many, many. I don't know how many. Uh the mixtape um was a was one that she had given to my neighbor, in fact, the one who gave me the oh, wow, pages. Okay. So right. this was a gift, a gift for her. Um, but it's still it was still so special to just occupy you know, however many minutes those those tracks on both sides lasted to occupy a frame of mind that you know she curated those songs, she listened to those songs, she put that that microcosm of that tape together, and it did feel kind of transporting to be able to to listen in to it. What would you like readers to walk away with then uh, when coming away from this book? Because it is an individual tale; it happened long ago uh, in a place that you know many Canadians won't have been to. Uh, but what would you what would you like readers to walk away with? One thing, again, it comes back to this, you know, we always think it'll never happen to us. And we always think it'll never happen to someone that we know or love. But I guess the message is, if someone is is afraid, and if if they trust you enough to come to you with your fear, to do them the minimum, which is believe them. And, you know, you may not be able to help, but you can offer them your belief. And, and maybe you can ask questions about how you are able to support them in that time. Yeah, I guess that that's what's coming to me there. But I welcome readers to to walk away with with whatever they do walk away with uh with this book. I think there are lots of different uh thoughts or 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 
mental provocations, ideas to to ruminate on with a story like this. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for uh, for sharing the whole story behind I Got a Name. Much appreciated. Thank you, Ben. I'd hoped to do this yesterday, but kind of put it off as one does on holiday and um, forgot to send, a, send a, a follow-up email to this guest. So that's why it didn't work out for last night. But it's one of those things I was thinking about as my two weeks off came to an end. You start to think about going back to work. And of course, it's not a dread. I, I love this job, but there, it does involve work, right? You sort of have to put your mind back into it. You have to get yourself out of vacation mode, usually something that takes you several days to get into in the first place, and sort of put yourself back into work mode, right? And sort of clear the brain and get set and all the things that you've sort of not done for a little bit. So it's not always easy. And I remember in other jobs where it was much more, you know, you had big projects on the go and, and taking time off just meant that that work wasn't usually getting done that going away and then coming back could be really stressful. And, and that's why some people don't take proper holidays, although holidays are so vital to, especially if you're sort of in a creative business, you absolutely need to rest your brain. But in any business, you kind of need to be able to take some rest and just not think about what it is that you do for most weeks of the year. Now, I managed to unplug for most of it. I, I booked a few interviews because I thought they were, you know, sometimes you're reading something, you think that'd be a great interview for when I get back. So I did that. And you've been hearing a few of them this week. Um, and you know, it, it is a no brainer that coming back and getting into your daily routine can be a di bit difficult. Uh, you know, your body still wants to maybe sleep in or enjoy a long and leisurely breakfast, or maybe take a long walk and an afternoon nap, and you can't do that anymore because it's time to work. So how do you shift back into work mode without losing too many of those benefits that you've accrued with your time off, sort of the reset that we all need when we take some time away from our usual routines? Well, it turns out, like so many things, preparation is key. Before you go, uh, you should really pave the way for a smooth vacation. And then when you come back, trying not to pile on too much, trying not to pile on too much onto your plate, when you get back is also key as well. But I thought we'd get some real advice on this because we're also heading into fall. I didn't want to mention the word, the, the fall word, because it's only August the 15th and the summer holidays are not yet over. There are still weeks to go, or at least a few weeks to go. Um, but we'll get some advice too on, on just how to reset come September when it feels like, wow, this is real again. Summer's over, fall's here, crunch time's arrived. To help us do all of this as someone who's written about all of this extensively, Anna Dearman Cornick is a time management coach, and she is host of the It's About Time podcast. Anna, thanks for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is always a tough one because I feel like vacations are so important, especially those summer holidays where you really get a time to unwind and unplug. But for a lot of people, it's daunting because going away means coming back and coming back means often coming back to a lot of work. So how do you tear yourself away or at least allow yourself to go away on vacation and give yourself the opportunity to really unwind? You know, you're right. Taking time to take our vacation days, to step away from work, to recharge, to spend time with family, friends, yourself. It is so important to help us maintain our energy levels throughout the year. You know, vacation and resting really is one of the most underrated productivity tools that exists. But you're right. 
it can be very daunting to think about the return so much so that you don't even want to leave. And that's why the best preparation for returning from holiday actually starts long before you leave. Right. In other words, just like you plan your holiday, you have to plan your departure from work as well in a way that will allow you to kind of to kind of go away with with your with your head clear. Exactly. It's so much more than creating your packing list to fill your suitcase and head out the door. It's also thinking about, okay, what do I need to set up in advance to make sure that my role continues while I'm away? If if it is something that needs to continue, who are the members of my team or contractors? Who are the key individuals that I need to connect with well before I leave for vacation to give them a heads up or to let them know that they'll be taking on some of my responsibilities. And then of course, making sure you take time to set up a communicative auto responder, maybe even consider changing your voicemail message if you'll be out for an extended period of time. But there's all of those little pieces of preparation that you can do in advance in order to step out of the office and feel calm and relaxed because you've got your bases covered until you return. You had an interesting thing about working backwards, so sort of planning it out in a way that you get the most. I, 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 I'll, I'll let you explain it because it's an interesting way of approaching it. Definitely. And so, you know, one thing that you can do when you know that you have a vacation, a holiday planned, you know, taking a look at what's my last day in the office and then working your way backwards to put together almost like an event plan. You know, what needs to be tackled one week out to ensure that you're ready to step out of office? Typically, it's the last minute communications, it's setting up your out of office, it's having final meetings with stakeholders or team members. And then what needs to happen two weeks out? Well, typically you're going to think about what projects need to be handed off, what meetings need to take place to ensure that continuity is possible. And then what needs to happen three weeks out? Who are your contacts? Who are your team members who are going to take things on on your behalf? And so when you start with what's your out of office date and work your way backwards, you can put together a very reasonable and attainable plan for stepping out of office without feeling that rush of, oh no, I'm leaving to go out of the country tomorrow. I need to scramble right. to get everything set up before I leave. These days, because of connectivity, you know, it's so hard to unplug because people know they can get a hold of you in an emergency, right? They know right. that it's something. Now, one of the things that I found really challenging is coming back, mm -hmm. uh, is sort of getting yourself back into the groove. Oftentimes you sort of go into vacation mode later in your vacation. So by the time you come back, you're unplugged, right? So what's the best way to plug back? In. And this applies to, I think, any kind of job. Doesn't matter if you have a team or you do something where the sort of the work you leave at home, you leave it at work when you go home each day. But what's the best way to come back to work and get yourself back into the groove? Definitely. You know, one thing that makes coming back easier, and I know this goes back to before you leave, but it's setting very clear expectations around what circumstances your team is permitted to reach out to you, what constitutes an emergency. Because when you have those clear expectations set in advance, then you're able to prepare for what you're coming back to. You know that you're not coming back to anything on fire because no one on your team reached out to you about an emergency while you were gone. So that's one thing that you can do is set expectations in advance so that your team knows how and what to communicate with you about. But my favorite recommendation for easing back in after being out of the office for an extended period of time 
is to make sure that your first day back in the office is as clear of meetings, obligations, and deadlines as possible. Because you know you're going to have a mountain of email to get to, a mountain of communication to sift through. Uh, there's a stat that explains that it takes the typical knowledge worker, so anyone who works behind a laptop, around 90 minutes a day to process new incoming communication. So now think about being out of town, being out of the office for a week, two weeks, all of that communication piling up, having that expectation that it's it's probably going to take you at least a day just to sort through all of the incoming communication. So give yourself that that break right when you come in, cut yourself that slack and, and try to avoid any meetings your first day, maybe your first two days back, just so that you can get a handle on what's happened while you were out. What are the priorities that you need to pick up on and what do you need to tackle moving forward? I should mention that you worked as a congressional scheduler, so you know exactly what this is all about, right? Did you do that <laughs> back when you did? Did you try always leave a day here and there so people could kind of ease back into their gig? You, you know, in, in a perfect world, yes, sometimes a half day was all that we could get for the congressman. But, you know, when time is money and time is dependent upon decisions that impact so many people like it does for the members of Congress, you do have to be so careful about not just managing time, but also managing energy. One of the biggest mistakes I made my first week on the job was forgetting to schedule uh, breaks for my boss. Right. <laughs> and, A meeting after meeting after meeting. Right. Exactly. Just I didn't even think about the fact that he might need to uh, take a bio break every once in a while. So learned that lesson really quickly. And you can definitely apply, you know, plan that get your sea legs day, uh, yeah. the day that you get back instead of jumping right back into meetings. Anna Dearman Cordick is a time management coach and host of the It's About Time podcast. We're talking about getting back into the work groove after summer holidays or heading into the fall. You wrote a really interesting article about, you know, the fall is often seen as a time to kind of reset, right? It's the summer's over, but it also takes a bit of time to get back into things. And you've talked about kind of using it as a time to revisit your goals and priorities. Mm -hmm. You know, the summer is kind of like the halftime of the year. And what happens at halftime? Uh, the teams go back into the locker room. They reflect on how things went the first half of the game. What went well? What mistakes were made? What can we do better? How do we need to adjust our strategy in the second half of the game in order to, to hit our goal, which is to win? And we have such a great opportunity to do that personally and professionally by looking at summer as the halftime of our year, taking time to reflect and then moving intentionally into the second half of our year, into fall, into the winter, um, where so many deadlines and projects are culminating um, and goals are being very closely monitored and looked at to make sure that everyone is um, moving toward the mark that either they've set for themselves or that their company or team has set. And you mentioned this can be something as simple as, you know, you go away on vacation and you realize, you know what, I really need to be exercising more, or I need to be eating a bit differently. And you kind of let yourself slide as you come in through the spring into the summer, you go away on holiday, you pick up some of those, do some of those things that you missed. There's ways of fitting those back into your schedule when you come back in the fall. Definitely. I, I love it because the fall is almost like a second new year. 
it's that fresh start feeling when so many, you know, kids are heading back to school, school supplies are on the shelves, ah, the right. smell of freshly sharpened pencils, huh. and it can really feel just reinvigorating and a great time to just revisit your goals from the beginning of the year and determine not just what you'd like to refocus on, but how you'd like to make them happen. And I suppose, again, that those are things that can be really, these, these don't have to be monumental things. These can be little things because it's little, little things often that pile up over the course of those first six months or before you go on that summer holiday. When you come back, I always feel like if there's something about your routine that you don't like, it's a good time to, to change it come September. It, it is. It's a great time to restart. Coming back from a holiday and using that holiday energy to think about what are the ingredients in my ideal week? You know, if I am, if I'm thinking about a week or a day in which I feel fulfilled, I'm pouring into myself, I am feeling accomplished and productive at work. What are the different ingredients that would make that happen? And so you don't even have to think about them in let me create a new routine, but just start with the ingredients. What would be the pieces? Because it might surprise you just where within your week you can fit in taking a walk to for your mental health or reading a few pages of a book or spending some quality time with your kids or your partner. You raise an interesting point because I think, feel like sometimes the idea of coming back from vacation or heading into the fall shouldn't be daunting. If, if you've done it right, it should, in fact, be invigorating. You should be mm -hmm. kind of reinvigorated. And the way to make sure you do that is probably to make a few little changes. As you mentioned, just like a team will, you know, in between periods or at halftime, it's a good time to kind of reassess what's working. You don't have to go back and be exactly the way you were three months earlier or three weeks earlier. Right. Of course not. We need to evolve. We need to change. We need to grow and adapt to how you know, life changes around us and what we want. You know, I love the reflection that we have the opportunity to enjoy while we're on holiday, while we're on vacation. And like you said earlier, if, if we know that we're coming back to a mountain of work and things that we're not looking forward to, it can really stifle that opportunity to think creatively and innovatively while we're resting. I know you, there's a lot of do's here, but are there any don'ts uh, that you think are important to know? Sure. I, I say don't let anyone tell you how often you should check in or check your email while you're on holiday. Right. So many people will tell you, oh, no, don't check your email or stay off of Slack or whatever your team communication is. But that's completely up to you and your comfort level. If you feel comfortable popping into your inbox once a day just to do a quick scan and clean up because you know that will make you feel calm and prepared when you return, you do that. Right. And I guess when you come back, make sure you don't have to come back with the treadmill on at high speed, right? You want to kind of ease back into your routine. Exactly. Yes. Well, Anna, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, we hunt high and low for the perfect songs for you. That is someone named Chad Hatcher. It's called the Donair Song. Sure enough, there's an ode to the Donair out there, a musical one. It's a great little tune about a great little sandwich. You may remember last month, though, we spoke to Alberta Today's Catherine Gukowski about a very strange item that she'd spotted on a Government of Alberta auction site. It was a full-sized Donair costume. Believe it or not, the suit, it's at 1.4 meters of vulcanized rubber and latex wrapped in fake tinfoil uh, with silver sleeves, arms, and legs. There's no face, and it's basically replica meat, onions, tomatoes, donair sauce, and lettuce. Keep that lettuce in mind. 
It was originally commissioned, Catherine went and found out, for a commercial on the perils of drug driving back in 2015. Apparently, uh, someone was supposed to be driving a car and they're high and this donor is sitting beside them telling them not to do it, right? Because what do you crave? We won't go there. Uh, that commercial, of course, for maybe obvious reasons, was never actually made. Uh, the prim- the prim- province wound up, though, holding on to the sandwich, so to speak. Here's Catherine Kukowski explaining back then. I was actually browsing the auction site and there was this donair costume in the oddities section and I thought that is just too weird, so I have to share. And she did. And when she did, it uh, became a, an overnight sensation. All of a sudden, a bidding war ensued for this donair costume. It had started off at 50 bucks. I don't know what uh, the auction site folks uh, with the government of Alberta expected to get for it, but you know what they got when bidding wrapped up last night? The winner has committed to forking out $16,025 for the meat suit wrapped in pita and foil. Again, bids had started at 50. Uh, Adil Asim is indeed the owner of Primetime Donair and Poutine in Edmonton. And he says it came down to a question of civic pride. You see, Haligonians have long laid claim to the Donair, at least in this country. I mean, the Donair is from not from Canada. But anyway, they've long laid claim to it, in this country at least. And there was a flurry of interest from the East Coast in buying it and bringing it back there. And they had some plans for it that didn't sit well with their Alberta Donair rivals, so to speak. You could say Asim forked out a lot of green to keep a bit of green in that costume. And uh, Adil Asim, owner of Primetime Donair and Poutine, joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Congratulations. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. This was what a story this was. I, I was really curious because we spoke to Catherine Grukowski about this when she first spotted it. But when you first saw that costume, I mean, I was flabbergasted about how realistic it looked. You know, I, it, the pictures on TV didn't do it justice. When I went to go see this thing in person, it blew my mind. It, it, it looks so realistic. Like, you literally want to take a bite of this thing. It's one of the, I, I'm going to say, the nicest uh, mascot style costume I've ever seen. And I assume, like everybody else, you had no idea that it existed, right? I, it was news to me, man. <laughs> my <laughs> wife told me about it one morning, and, I, and I, I checked it out, and I said, you know what, we've got a lot of expansion happening, a bunch of new locations opening, we might be able to use this thing. Back then, the, the bidding was at three or $4,000, so, you know, it was a lot more, you know, uh, I guess, easy to make that decision back then. But then we got involved in the bidding war, and, uh, you know, some... Uh, very nasty words were said on the other side regarding the lettuce, and we had to do uh, what we had to do to get that uh, that lettuce to keep in there. Yeah, I mean, this was this became it because honestly, I grew up in Montreal, right? I grew up in a Greek neighborhood, actually, so I've, I've eaten a lot of what we call donairs in Montreal, and I've been to Halifax, I've been to Edmonton, I've had both. I never really realized that there was this fight over the purity of the donair, and it all boiled down to the lettuce. So, what is the battle about? I guess the Haligonians say. Ixnay on the lettuce. You know, it, it, it was never really an issue for me until I opened a Donair shop. I started eating Donairs, uh, you know, born and raised in Edmonton when I was probably three or four years old, and they always had lettuce in them. That was kind of normal. Then I opened the shop, and I assumed that that's just how they were, they were made. And uh, then I had the people from the Halifax, uh, the, the people who had immigrated, or sorry, uh, who had moved over from, from Nova Scotia to Alberta. And they started telling me that, no, no, lettuce is blasphemous. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And, uh, you know, there, there's, some, there's some of them that are so passionate about that, 
just the mere mention of lettuce on a donaire is blasphemy, and uh, no way, shape, or form can that happen for them. Ah, uh, you know, I've always been of the of the idea that there is no such thing as purity in food. <laughs> like, put whatever you want on it, as long as you think it's tasty. Uh, but this was a bit of a civic pride thing then. I mean, you wanted to make sure that this donaire costume, with its lettuce, because of course it was made for Alberta, therefore it had the lettuce in it. Uh, you wanted to make sure it stayed the same. Well, we have a donaire on our menu called the Alberta Classic, and it's it's right. a donaire that we named a while back. And it's got exactly what the, the, the costume has. It's a sweet sauce, lettuce, tomato, onion, beef donaire. And so, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons why we were so passionate about getting this thing, because the suit was commissioned by the Alberta government. It uh, was made for, you know, an Alberta initiative. And we feel it's a state in Alberta, and it should be as close to an Alberta standard donaire as possible. And this is why, uh, you know, we were so gung-ho on getting it. Right, sixteen grand though. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of cash. It is. It is now. You know what? When we were at about nine or ten grand, we we dove deep. My uh, corporate team said, you know, let's take a look at it. So we we made some inquiries. We went to go and see the suit, and we called the uh, the, the manufacturer. And it turns out that this is actually a, a pretty good deal. So the manufacturer who made this suit is the same studio that was responsible for uh, iconic characters in the movies, like the State Puff Marshmallow Man. Um, right. We've got uh, the zombies from Walking Dead. They were involved with Michael Jackson's thriller video. They've been around for decades, producing all kinds of you know awesome uh, outfits. And uh, you know, it's something that when we looked into the price point to get commissioned new would be about fifteen to twenty thousand U.S. dollars. And so at sixteen thousand Canadian, with all the the fame attached to it and all the you know uh, I, I guess uh, infamy, if you will, we we had to buy it. It was a, it was a good yeah. investment at that point. Yeah, I'd read a bit about the background to it. I guess at some point I think it was called a shawarma costume, or at least that's how the person who was making it sort of tried to picture it and not to get into the sandwich fight, but they're pretty similar. They don't taste much alike, but they're pretty similar. I, I didn't, and I knew a bit about the history, but it's a, it's remarkable. I again to go back to just how I've only seen it in pictures uh, and on video, but wow, what a good looking costume that is! If you're, especially if you own a donair shop. It really is. Like when I saw it in person, I honestly let out a, like a little yell. It was so cool. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be that amazing. But uh, when you see it in person, uh, it really it, it shines on a different level. And I think that's kind of partly why it has so much of a following, because those people who did see it, it was uh, parading around the uh, Taste of Edmonton Festival a that. while back with uh, our premiere. And, uh, I, I, you know, thousands of people saw it then. And, and it's, it's just the most, the most beautiful thing, I think, uh, for, for a mascot. So your plans, because I gather you have a few things that both involve your business, obviously, but also some other stuff as well, because there's a lot of interest specifically in Alberta. But, you know, this has been covered around the world. There's a lot of interest in this costume now. It really has. I, I, I've actually, you know, this is probably my last interview for the day, but I've done close to 30 interviews today. Uh, my voice wow. is almost gone. Um, <laughs> I've talked to people from BBC, Australian Press, uh, New York Times, all across Canada, I've been on camera, off camera, radio, podcast, <laughs> you name it. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm, we, we don't understand. Like, we'll, we'll definitely uh, talk Donaire with anybody who wants to talk Donaire with us. But uh, it's amazing how much traction this story has got. Right. And what are you going to do with the costume now? Because I understand there might be some charitable stuff involved. I mean, there's a lot of potential here, mm -hmm. both as, as a business thing, but also as a community thing. 
So there definitely will be some charity involved here. We always have been big into charity. Anybody checking out our website will see that Primetime's always been big into giving back to the community. Um, so obviously we've got a big expansion happening in Western Canada. There's 25 locations currently operational with nine more in the pipeline and another 11 in development. So we've got use for it from a marketing, you know, uh, a promotional kind of stand uh, viewpoint. But in addition to that, uh, a really beautiful thing happened at the end. When we finally won the bidding, the second place bidder is a pretty established YouTuber, uh, Camping with Steve. He's a stealth camper uh, YouTuber. He's got over a million followers. And wow. so he had wanted, he had mentioned to a radio station that he wanted to do some charitable initiatives like uh, food bank drives or something like that. So we had the idea, uh, we floated it out to him for uh, some kind of a charity donaire contest or, or something like that, that not only would put a smile on people's faces, but, you know, would uh, involve the eating of this wonderful food that he and we absolutely love and adore. Uh, he, he being from Nova Scotia originally, by the way, so it's, it's passionate for him. Um, and then, you know, if we can also uh, support some worthy causes in the meantime, um, that's a win-win for everybody. So that's what we want to do with it. Um, I'm sure it'll make some promotional appearances and new store openings as well. Uh, we got to uh, somehow try to claw that $16,000 investment back. Yeah. As a charitable drive is what we want. And if we can do, uh, you know, some, some good with this thing, then we're, everybody's a winner. Yeah, I, I mean, I've used it. I, it looked kind of. It looked like there wasn't a face in it, though. It must be kind of tough. It looked like it was a little bit tough to wear. I'm not sure that's true. So I couldn't get, actually get it on. It's smaller than it looks, even though it's a right. mirror and some high. When you when you look at it, it's. I'm a bigger guy, so getting around my shoulders is probably not going to happen. But um, from what I can tell, there's a, a spot there. It's so well made, but the, the spot where you see from is actually quite unobstructed uh, that's what both of oh, okay. people tried it on set so and the way they did it, it was just amazing again it's, it's all the attention to detail that was put into this suit um getting a close-up look at it the 15 or 16 or 17 thousand dollar price point starts to make sense it really does incredible you know what it really struck me about this story though because again i grew up sort of in, beside a greek neighborhood in montreal i think you grew up eating donaires in 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 Hall- in, um, in edmonton obviously Anyone who grew up on the, uh, in the Maritimes knows what a Halifax Donaire is. It reminded me that a lot of people in this country really love the Donaire. That's why this story became such a big deal. People love the sandwich. You know, end of story. Absolutely. Absolutely, they do. And it's, it's a, a sandwich you could find around the world. But in Canada, and a lot of people don't know this, we've got a special claim to Donaire or that type of food. And this is what that claim is. That sweet Donaire sauce. That right. white goodness that they put onto it doesn't matter if you're in the maritimes in alberta wherever you're eating a doner a, a sweet doner sauce is usually found and that is exclusively a canadian thing you're not going to find sweet sauce in turkey or in greece or in the mediterranean that is a canadian thing and so that's a claim that i think that we should be proud of uh the sweet sauce is probably one of my favorite things in the whole world and and I know a lot of people that would think uh, that you know have that likewise opinion. So um, we should be proud of uh, of our of our um, you know what we've given our, to the Donaire uh, game worldwide, and uh, you know it's it's a Canadian thing. Yeah, our contribution to the incredible mosaic that is the Donaire worldwide, because it literally tastes different, not completely different. But if you have a Donaire kebab in in England, or or you have one in Berlin, or you have one in Turkey itself, I mean, they taste different everywhere you go, right? And it's, so you're right, Absolutely. Canada has its own. So lastly, but not leastly, what are we going to do with this lettuce thing? Are you, I suppose we should, we should just let people eat donaires the way they want to eat them, I think. 
I, I feel the same way. I, I don't to, to be an absolutist on Donaire is probably not the good thing. I always like to use the analogy of pizza. Like if you've got a New York thin crust or a Chicago deep dish, it's still pizza at the end of the day, right? Just a different interpretation of, of the, the, the item that everybody loves. And that's what I think the Donaire has evolved into. We, we, we add lettuce. Uh, I mean, here in Alberta, we take it even a step further. At prime time, especially, we, add, we can add flavors like pineapple burst or butter chicken or, or a pineapple fire burst. infusion. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've taken it yeah. a step further. It's, it's the evolution of Donaire. We like to kind of see where we can go with it. Well, uh, Adil, I know you've done a thousand of these today, and I get to say to you, that's a wrap. <laughs> there you go. I've wanted to say that. <laughs> word. I have a, no, that's the first a bad time I've heard that today. That's original. <laughs> oh, good. Adil, uh, congratulations, and I look forward to seeing the Donaire costume back out there soon. Well, thank you so much, and again, thanks for having me on.